Hey guys, welcome back to another fun-filled edition of Aviation Lowdown. This is your host, LO. Today is October 20th, 2019, and I was just getting off the phone with my brother. We're talking about the weather. He's upstate in Albany, and I'm down here on the... I'm like, dude, what is going on? Because it was so nice this morning, and then all of a sudden it got a little dreary, and then rainy, and then it's just like, God, it was like a monsoon a second ago. Uh, it was that tropical storm, apparently, that uh, kind of roared through the southeast U.S. and then came up the coast. And now it's like out in Greenland or something. It's a really fast-moving storm. But I'm like, geez, like, weather's changing its mood more than I do. Uh, but anyway, suffice it to say, welcome back to an indoor edition of Aviation Loan. I Actually, I mentioned that specifically because I don't want to spill any beans as to what I was, I was planning. But uh, I was perhaps going remote for this uh, this podcast recording. But uh, as luck and weather would have it, I am not doing that this episode. We're back here in the studio, which is just fine by me because I think, uh, you know, it's something I'm familiar with. So anyway, welcome back to another fun-filled edition. Before I go any further, I just wanted to mention that as of, I guess, yesterday, I had something like 100 emails in reference to the 737 story last episode. And this was just supposed to be like a nice little segue into the lives of people who I guess like are really into aviation. You know, they quite literally sleep with airplanes. I mean, this woman, if you're not familiar, she is in love with a 737, uh, what is it, 800 series? I think It's not important. But anyway, she has a gigantic model airplane as among many other things. And she, you know, has it in her bed and she cuddles with it and stuff and People were actually submitting photos of themselves doing similar things. And one person said, hey, dude, back when I was an ERAU student at Riddle, okay, this is what I did one night. And he sent me this picture of, it's like a an F-35. And this thing's massive, man. It's like 10 feet long. And uh, it's covered by a blanket. And he made it into a meme. And it says, the day after a successful Tinder date for a normal person, it shows this like you know fairly attractive woman on a bed, and then it says the day after a successful Tinder date for somebody at Embry Riddle, and it has the photo of the F thirty five under a blanket. So anyway, that was enough for me. I said, okay, that's it. We're changing the topic and uh, and moving on. By the way, I know I mentioned last time to have some interviews on the episode, and I did. I actually had a bunch of interviews, but they were not on this podcast. They were actually on low altitude. So shameless self-promotion real quick, but I always tell you guys this. If you do not follow LO altitude, low altitude on Instagram, now is the time to do so. All right. Let's make it clear right now. Site's pretty crazy. Come join the chaos. All right, so on today's edition, I'd like to talk to you guys about something that apparently has sparked quite a bit of debate on that very Instagram, low altitude, low altitude. It's nothing too political or too polarizing, I didn't think, but it's something that has immediate repercussions within the aviation industry, and I guess it addresses something that I've mentioned previously in this podcast series, uh, which is fatigue. I mean, it's pretty intimately related to that topic, which we'll be diving into very shortly. But this particular story is something that also crossed into mainstream media, and you might have heard about it, actually. So just a real quick background to kind of recap into this story here. A few months ago, I was flying to San Diego, and I go back and forth from New York to San Diego and LA and stuff like that now and then. I actually have some people out there who I know pretty well. So 
I was sitting on my Southwest Airlines flight and I'm like, dude, like my legs are totally asleep right now. My ass hurts. Like, what the hell? This this sucks. And that flight was only like five and a half hours, six hours at most, something like that. And the other day, earlier this week, I was down in DC and the uh, I took the train down there from New York. And there's a lot more leg room and it was more comfortable. And I noticed somewhere during that trip, I'm like, you know, wow, like I feel fine. You know, just that extra few inches of leg room really gave me the ability to maintain feeling in my ass. You know what I mean? So what I had learned, and I guess I could apply this to aviation, is that, man, how you sit for an extended period of time could make a tremendous difference in the way you feel. And we all know that if you feel like crap, uh, you know, being in limited legroom seats and everything like that, it's just going to make your trip miserable, right? So I had a great trip down to Washington, D.C., and on the train ride back, I was doing a little bit of work and I decided to read some news, you know. So I dig into the news, and it was actually the first article I saw, ironically and so appropriately, this idea of, man, I really don't like being trapped in traveling for an extended period of time. You know, one thing on Amtrak, I was pretty comfortable, like I said, but air travel can be notoriously finicky, especially with the difference between the airlines, the difference between the equipment, that is to say, different planes have more or less room, (laughs) of course, depending on how much money you're willing to pay as well sometimes. But for those of you listening, you may be familiar with this story. Yeah, this is out of Sydney, Australia. You guys may know about this already. Qantas, right? Spelled not like it sounds, which I'll also get into. Kind of a funny story about that. But Australia's Qantas Airlines on Sunday, as per the USA Today, they said that they had completed the first nonstop commercial flight from New York to Sydney, which was used to run a series of tests to assess the effects of ultra long haul flights on crew fatigue and passenger jet lag. All right, so this is actually a Boeing 787 Dreamliner, not to be confused with the Airbus McDouglas 319 or whatever whatever the hell people on Instagram uh, like to say it as. But the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, it touched down in Sydney. This was on Sunday morning. So I guess technically this morning, although I don't really know how the uh, the world is flat, so I'm not really sure how these time zone things work. But uh, anyway, long story short, 19 hours and 16 minutes. That's how long the flight is. 19 hours and 16 minutes. So I'm reading this article as I'm sitting on my Amtrak, which I was like, man, this is like you know, a four-hour trip. I'm like, that's a long time. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. No, th- this flight, right, it's like five times more than this. So I was joking. I was like, oh, so if I fly from New York to LA or something like that, I mean, that's like not even a third of the way to the, you know, to Sydney. I, I, of course, I don't know the route, but uh, it's something to consider. So being an aviation nerd and obviously running a lot of stuff within that community, many people, I do think, and I will admit this, it's part of what I have observed, but many people forget the finance and economic viability of such a thing. You know, they're like, well, you know, the planes can handle it and the people can do it. So we should. But it's like, all right, can the airline actually make money? Well, come to find out, a lot of people really liked this idea. And the airline determined, yeah, this is actually something we could profit on. Otherwise, I don't know why they would do it. (laughs) But anyway, so the real question isn't so much will people want to fly it? Because clearly there are some 
crazy people out there who want to fly on a plane for 20 hours. But the real question, as it's sort of hinted in the article, is, is this even possible on people's bodies, on their ability to do the job? And uh, as Qantas said, tests range from monitoring pilot brainwaves, melatonin levels, and alertness to exercise classes for passengers. A total of 49 people were on board in order to minimize weight and give the necessary fuel range. Uh, So that's kind of a crazy thing to think about. You're talking about the longest flight in the world, or one of them, I suppose, probably ever. And it's suggesting that they really couldn't have a full load due to things like weight and balance, uh, how it relates to fuel specifically. (laughs) It's kind of a crazy thought. But... Anyway, it opened up a whole window of discussion to the fact of, uh, hey, dudes, uh, how would you like to fly a plane for 20 hours? Of course, there's not one crew, I would hope, but (laughs) here are some of the interesting thoughts that were shared on my Instagram with respect to this story of the longest flight in the world. So, one of my friends here says, I've done 16-hour flights multiple times, and I've only inverted the 747 once when I was tired, so 20 seems doable. All right, that was my good friend 74 Gear. You guys may know him from YouTube. Uh, thanks for that professional input. Really appreciate that, man. Uh, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, that thanks for the uh, thanks for the comment. By the way, I owe you an interview. Long story. Anyway, this guy Nick J156 says maybe the fact that they're actually monitoring and testing the pilot fatigue on this flight is a good thing. I mean, current fatigue monitoring programs for pilots are useless, so maybe they will realize that these ultra-long flights are super tough. And actually, I responded, hey, good point, check out why we sleep. Uh, That's a book. You guys may have remembered that earlier in the summer this year, I mentioned Why We Sleep. Dr. Matthew Walker, Sleep Guy. Crazy scary book. All right. Like, not for the faint of heart. Don't read that before you go to bed. You definitely won't sleep, which will probably make you not want to sleep even more. And then you'll be like, why did I read that book about sleeping? But yeah, right? So this is a time where the airline or whoever is regulating this stuff is taking fatigue seriously enough to actually suggest we should be monitoring this thing and looking out for the health and safety of our pilots and, uh, well, the entire crew and the passengers too, hopefully. So most of the general responses range from things like arguing that the world is round versus the world is flat to this person said, quote, I wanted Airbus to win the Project Sunrise. By the way, Project Sunrise is what they're calling this grand experiment to see if uh, man and machine can handle the 20 hour flight from JFK to Sydney. It says that I wanted Airbus to win the Project Sunrise challenge, but it looks like Boeing has already taken the cake. Yeah, that was actually a very, very interesting sort of under the ground argument as to who was going to be the ones to carry these people across the globe in this long, long flight. And this is a little interesting. This person says, low altitude, a little late here, but do the engines have the efficiency to take a plane fully loaded for 20 hours without a refuel? I'm not one who researches commercial airliners. Okay, now we're actually getting into somewhat serious discussion. Uh, somebody responded, they don't. That's why there are only 50 passengers on board. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's an interesting take on it. However, they are in development by Airbus, which is supposedly called the A350 XLR, which I don't know if you guys are into audio, but when I see the word XLR, all I can think about is a highly efficient, very convenient three-pronged plug that carries audio across signal platforms. But he says in the Boeing 
777X and should be ready by the time the route launches with the ability to carry a full load of passengers and cargo. Nevertheless, guys, I don't think that the equipment is going to be the big limiting factor as to whether or not we can fly across the globe. The question, as it was in the beginning of this discussion, is can the people on board the plane actually handle it? For those of you who are familiar with some of the previous podcast episodes, as I mentioned, I did talk about Dr. Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, a few months ago. One of my favorite books of all time. Really worth the read, by the way, if you're uh, if you're into it. Not sponsored to say that or anything. I just really like the book. But a lot of the stuff mentioned in this article about, quote-unquote, Project Sunrise, this flight to Sydney from New York, mentions a lot of the things that uh, Dr. Walker was talking about in his book. So one of the things is they say, quote, from the USA Today article about Project Sunrise, we know ultra-long-haul flights pose some extra challenges, but that's been true every time technology has allowed us, allowed us to fly farther. They go on to say some more things, too, about that. Basically, they're arguing that they need to know what's going on because it's uncharted territory, you know, quite literally. It says, the research we're doing should give us better strategies for improving comfort and well-being along the way. And that's Qantas Group CEO, Alan Joyce. So they're saying that we need to find out what are the long-term effects or even short-term effects for that matter of flying in these ridiculous long flights, right? Night flights usually start with dinner and then lights off. But he said that for this flight, quote, we started with lunch and kept the lights on for the first six hours to match the time of day at our destination. It means you start reducing the jet lag straight away. So despite all of the humor and fun that I am so into with aviation stuff, but that last statement having to do with adjusting the lights for passenger comfort and more specifically to adjust the passenger's to a destination local time. I mean, that's essentially what you're doing. You are adjusting their jet lag before they've actually been lagged. That's actually genius. I mean, that is truly uh, an industry disrupting idea. I'm, and I'm totally serious about that because, you know, one of the things that I have constantly found throughout so much of the reading and the studying and just being interested in so much of this stuff is that a lot of times the most monumental, world-shaking, industry-rattling changes start kind of like humble, you know, and there's not a lot to it. The idea of adjusting lights, for example, to help passengers adjust to a new time zone is fucking genius, <laughs> all right? But yet it is the most simple thing. It's really interesting in that book, Why We Sleep, how... Aviation is actually mentioned explicitly a few times. But Dr. Matthew Walker mentions how over the centuries, human beings have tried to better adapt, let's say, to our natural rhythm. And it's kind of ironic to think, but it's like, you know, we live in an industrialized society. It's extremely uh, not natural. <laughs> it's extremely artificial, right? There's blue light ever. I'm, I'm in a studio in my home right now, and I'm literally just surrounded by LEDs. I have red ones and black lights and blue lights, and it's like, yeah, this stuff is cool, but I'm staring into a 36-inch LCD screen that's just sending my retinas nothing but high-frequency blue short wavelength light. And that's like the worst possible thing you could ever be doing if you're trying to maintain your natural circadian rhythm. But here's the thing, that can actually be used as an advantage, right? 
And that's sort of what this airline, Qantas, is trying to do with this lighting thing. So that book mentions a number of studies that do actually, in fact, show that there are a ton of things that can be done in your environment that don't really involve any invasive procedures that can really improve people's uh, quality of sleep and their wakefulness. So, all right, so step one, that's something that I thought was really, really wild and cool. And it got me thinking, like, do other airlines do that? Now, they might. I don't know. They might. But, for example, adjusting a circadian rhythm while on the flight or trying to at least assist with that, that seemed really cool to me. Something to totally mention, especially on this podcast. All right, well, so the lights can help the passengers and maintain their comfort as they're in this pressurized tube at 40,000 feet or whatever above the ocean for 20 hours. But what about the crew? And specifically, what do the crew do in order to maintain their ability to, well, do their job in the best of their capacity? Okay, so one of the things that most people would think is, well, the first solution is to get a bunch of different crews to fly the plane. Well, that's sort of like a no-brainer. You're not going to have one guy fly the plane for 20 hours. But how do you maximize the crew's ability to, number one, uh, well, let's be honest here. You don't want to have too many people because it's going to cost the airline too much money. But number two, how do you maintain their ability to actually get rest, recuperate, and then fly the plane again later on in the flight? So those are the two challenges. You know, you don't want to overstep your bounds because then you're going to bankrupt the airline or at the very least have them piss away money they don't need to spend on people who really aren't needed. And on the other side of it, you don't want to have fatigued pilots who are overworked flying a plane across a planet. Now, I am not a sleep scientist and I don't claim to be one, but I do read a lot. And from what I've been able to understand over the past few years of reading a lot about this stuff because I'm into it, is the overall feeling that we as human beings in a scientific community, let's just say, don't really understand sleep a whole lot. And I think part of it, just my opinion, is due to the fact that in the decades past, most of the studies having to do with sleep were specifically focused with the overall goal in mind of trying to get people to function better while mitigating sleep. In fact, it I don't think it was really until like the 1980s when studies, a lot of them actually done by NASA and the FAA of all things, were looking into the value of sleep. And that's actually when NASA started publishing their findings on napping. And in fact, they let pilots nap at the controls of the plane. I mean, okay, so somebody else flying the damn thing, but... And they found out that almost every metric that they measured, reaction time and their response and startle times and their ability to make decisions and prioritize after like a 15 or 20 minute nap was significantly improved. And uh, I, by the way, I still think that this terrifies people. I, I, I'm still convinced about this because if you tell like a manager, you're like, hey, man, uh, you know, your, your crew out there is sleeping. They'd be like, what the hell is going on? You know, but in reality... You could take a 15, 20-minute power nap. And by the way, power nap was totally coined by NASA because they, they wanted – NASA and the FAA. I think it actually might have been the FAA. Somebody fact-checked me on that. But it was somebody in the government because they wanted it to be less stigmatized. It was like, yeah, man, power nap. Anyway, I digress a bit. But just a really interesting tidbit that for most of 
the past studies that were done over the decades on sleep. It was all about how do we function better on less sleep instead of how do we improve the quality of the sleep that we're trying to get. And it echoes a lot in the flavors of this modern story this week because, again, it's sort of like, can human beings actually do this job? I mean, the machines and the engines and stuff, yeah, sure, they're going to be fine. But how do people actually maintain their focus and, more importantly, their sanity while flying a plane for 20 hours straight? So the story of America trying to basically mitigate sleep and work harder than ever is deeply ingrained into our blood. And uh, it's something that, by the way, you'll never learn about in grade school. But case in point, in 1932, company called Smith, Klein & French started selling an inhaler, and it was to be used for nasal congestion. So, you know, you got a sinus headache, your stuffy nose, whatever. Use this stuff, spray a bit. A few minutes later, you're going to feel great. And the stuff really worked. But, you know, unlike a modern asthma inhaler, the stuff didn't have a pressurized canister. It was basically just a cotton strip with the medicine on it. And you didn't need a prescription for this stuff. Just walk on down to the store, give the guy probably a few cents back then in the 30s, and off you go, you know. And a number of people who used this inhaler realized that some of the effects, the side effects, I suppose you could call it, were kind of pleasant. They gave people a bit of a pep in their step. You know, they felt a little better, more energized. And more importantly to some, they realized that they could actually kind of work a little bit longer without as much sleep. Kind of an interesting side effect for something that was to be used to clear your nose out. For those of you who don't know, the drug that I'm talking about was sold under the name Benzedrine. And its effects, both its decongestant effect as well as the stimulant effect that brought on that notorious ability to ward off sleep, was due to the fact that Benzedrine was the first sold amphetamine. And it's really interesting to note the timing of this drug's introduction into the market and indeed all of culture and society, because during the 30s, there were a number of people who came up to the U.S. military and said, hey guys, this drug has an incredible use within our armed forces. I mean, think about it. What could be better than a soldier that doesn't have to sleep, a pilot that doesn't have to sleep, guys in naval bases and ships out in the oceans that don't have to sleep? And they're like, hell yeah. So beautiful case in point, but it's sort of like you can see that way back in the 30s and 40s, the military, of obviously, they had a huge interest in trying to get their guys on the battlefield to stay alert and awake as long as they could. And by the way, for the air crews, they actually really did issue this stuff. In fact, it's funny, I saw a poster, I guess it was like one of those old World War II posters, and you can look this up on Google if you don't believe me, but it's totally true. It says, the flight surgeon is now authorized to give benzodrine inhalers to high-altitude flight crews. So, swear to God, that's actually a real thing, and this was back in the early 40s. They were issuing amphetamines to pilots in order for them to stay awake and focused for these incredibly long missions. So, Really a wild story that I don't think many people understand or appreciate. Hey, by the way, just as a small side note, the Allies weren't the only ones using amphetamines. German troops were issued a pill called Pervitin, which you may know by its other more common name, methamphetamine. So quite literally, the Germans were on meth. Yet World War II was truly fought on amphetamines. There's no doubt about it. Just sort of an interesting story. So fast forward a few decades later, and the U.S. Air Force was still issuing dextroamphetamine to pilots for long missions. They were nicknamed Go Pills and Pep Pills, and basically used the same way they were back in the 40s to help keep pilots awake for 
extra extended long missions, you know. The problem, though, with amphetamines is that, number one, people don't react the same way to them. Some people are great on them. Some people, they're absolutely terrible. Perhaps worst of all, though, it can be addicting, and you don't want to have a whole bunch of people hooked on drugs. In fact, that's sort of what happened in the 50s and 60s. If you read about the culture during that time period, a lot of those guys were from that era during the war. So they're like, all right, this isn't like this is not a good idea. We can't keep solving the sleep problem or fatigue by giving people drugs. Now, I'm not going to get into this next topic too deeply, but if you guys are interested in some of this stuff, which, by the way, I find it absolutely fucking fascinating. Look up a drug called modafinil. And this drug is really kind of a weird type of drug because it's not really a stimulant. It kind of is. It's not addicting like the amphetamine. So that was really, really good for a lot of these armed forces. In fact, the U.S. Air Force and the Army, I think they officially have retired all the older amphetamine drugs. And they said, we're only going to use or look into or research modafinil. A lot of police departments and fire departments and shift workers and doctors even, people are looking to modafinil to help them mitigate sleep. In fact, it's even been used to treat what is called shift work sleep disorder. I'm not making this shit up. This is real stuff that I've read about. Uh, Again, read about this drug. Now, one of the things people have to do, I think, when reading about this stuff is to kind of like silence their conditioned mental voice, you know, because you hear you're like, oh my God, it's a drug. Oh my God. You know, but, and yeah, it's true. Like most of this stuff is dangerous. Like people should mess with this stuff. There's no doubt about it. But For the topic of discussion, the point of all this is, like I said in the beginning, our understanding of why some of this stuff works is extremely limited. So modafinil, right? Something to to read about. And when I tie this all back together to find out how can we get a 20-hour flight to be the best flight it can possibly be? Well, One of the worst solutions is to give them a bunch of drugs, okay? (laughs) Probably not the best solution. But I tell people this story to bring into perspective and to bring into light just how serious some people have taken the problem of sleep, quote-unquote problem, and tried to fix it. It's certainly something that is an always ongoing experiment. Like I've said multiple times, we really don't understand a whole lot about fatigue, sleep, Mitigating that risk that's associated with flying for 20 hours. It's a significant risk. I mean, I don't know what the number is of how focused the average person can be, but it's it's got to be, I mean, now in 2019, it's got to be like three seconds. But it's, I think it's about 12 minutes or something. So it's a really interesting topic to consider. And one of the things that I've learned from reading, again, I'm not a sleep scientist. I'll preface this by saying that, but I've read quite a bit. And from what I can gather... There is never such thing as a psychological free lunch. You can take the best drug in the world and have the best, you know, amount of food and the happiest career and the best sex of your life or whatever it is that can keep you stimulated, but nothing can replace true, good quality sleep. That's the only thing we know that can truly regenerate and rejuvenate. In fact, if you take people out of their sleep ability and you keep them up, they die. They literally die. So, again, read that book, Why We Sleep. It's a terrifyingly entertaining book. And how do we measure the ability for a pilot or for any professional to do their job for 20 hours in a pressurized tube? Damn. That is a tough question. (laughs) 
Anyway, guys, I hope you got a little bit out of this. Consider it. What do you think? I mean, do you think that they actually can handle it? Like, what kind of effects will it have on the human body to stay in a pressurized tube for 20 hours? You know, will they be able to focus that long? If you're the fourth pilot and you've been in a plane for 16 hours, are you going to be able to fly and land that thing without modafinil? (laughs) You know, without coffee? Haven't even talked about caffeine. Hmm. I don't know. Crazy topic. Crazy, crazy topic. Hello at aviationlowdown.com. This stuff really interests me. I love the blending of both science and technology and, well, aviation, of course. So send me what you think and we'll get this discussion going. Hope you guys go out and have yourselves a great week. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And by the way, if you're flying to Sydney because I live here in New York, I'm not entirely sure I'd be up to take that 20-hour flight yet. I don't know. I might have to connect in LA or something, Honolulu. I don't know what they do, but 20 hours? Come on. Really, dude? (laughs) On behalf of Aviation Lowdown, this is your host, LO. I'll see you guys real soon. Be sure to subscribe if you like this podcast. Also, give me a like and follow on Instagram, man, LO Altitude. Hey, by the way, Plane Hub shirts? Yeah. Message me. Take it easy, guys. Bye-bye.